Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Mark Chestnut is a New York City-based journalist, editor, and public speaker. He's also now a memoirist. His book, Prepare for Departure, notes on a single mother, a misfit son, inevitable mortality, and the enduring allure of frequent flyer miles was recently published. As you can tell from the title, Mark's memoir is about a lot of things, including grief. It's also a book about love and care and acceptance. Not the infamous acceptance from the five stages of grief, but the acceptance that can happen between a mother and a son when one of their lives is coming to an end. Grief first came into Mark's world when he was four, and his father died of lung cancer. Suddenly a single parent, Mark's mother threw herself into a new world of education, work, and community involvement. Her philosophy throughout all of that was along the lines of, just do what you have to do. A philosophy that infused so much of how she lived and how she approached her death. Mark's book, Prepare for Departure, started off as a series of journal entries and essays he wrote while caring for his mother during the last few weeks of her life. In it, he moves between poignant scenes with his mother at her care facility and memories of his childhood. Mark and I travel to a lot of places in this conversation. We get into what he learned about grief from watching his mother after his father died, and how those lessons shaped the way he approached both caring for her and grieving after her death. We also get into how he moved into a place of forgiveness with his mother for the way she responded when he came out to her as a young adult and how he and his husband, Angel, were able to form a close relationship with her despite that. Finally, we explore how Mark dealt with and continues to deal with his grief, even during the height of COVID when he was unable to turn to his usual outlet, travel. Mark, thanks so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a pleasure to, to be here. Let's start with a couple of words you would use because you are a writer. So what are a couple of words you would use to describe your mother? There are several words, I think. Funny is definitely one. Practical, realistic, open-minded, curious, unpretentious. So there's a lot of different words. She was a very multifaceted person, like everybody is really, but uh, she had a lot of really good qualities and fun qualities too. Yeah, her practicality really comes through in your memoir, Prepare for Departure. <laughs> she just like cuts to it so many times throughout the book, I really, and it made me laugh too in that way. And, and I'm curious, you know, as a, as a child of your mother, even though you're no longer a child, are there any intersections between the words people would use to describe you and the words you just used to describe your mother? I think so. Um, or at least I'd like to think so, because I think a lot of the words that I would use to describe her are things that I think are good things, you know, that are positive descriptions. So I'd like to think that most or all of the words that I use to describe her describe me. Um, Definitely, I would say the funny part, because the sense of humor was something that was passed down from 
my grandfather, I know, I don't know if it started with him, but I knew my grandfather, he was super funny. And then his daughter, my mother was really funny. So the funny gene has kind of uh, passed down. And, you know, I think that that was something that our family has always valued a lot, including in difficult times, you know, when we're dealing with illness or grief, the, um, you know, humor has been something that is that has helped all of us because, you know, laughter can be very a wonderful and healthy thing, even at a time when you're feeling really sad about something. And you this your mother's death was not your first experience of having a parent die. Your father died when you were four. And I know you write in the book that it was an experience that you had, but not really one that you were that conscious of the grief playing a role in your life growing up. But I'm wondering, like, retrospectively, do you have a sense of how that experience of having your father die at four played any kind of role in shaping how you were in reaction to the end of your mother's life? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's true what you say. And as, as you read in the book, that it wasn't the same experience at all. Obviously, it was vastly different because when you're four years old and your parent dies, at least in my case, you know, I I, re I barely remember any details related to that. And I didn't really understand what was happening, as my mother told me later. And I saw it at some at sometimes as like a way it just was an excuse for me to get more attention from from adults. So I probably enjoyed some aspects of that, um, strangely enough. So I can't say that I really I didn't learn anything specific from the experience with my father's death that really influenced or affected how I would I how I dealt with my mother's illness and and death but I think my father's death and and the, his absence for most of my life was one of the factors that made me me dread my mother's death more because of the fact that I grew up in a two person household basically um it was just my mother and me because my father had passed away and my sister was a lot older so she moved she moved away to college when I started kindergarten so right around the same time that my father died so it was just my mother and me and so i it was such a small close knit family just two people that i felt i had so much emotional connection just to her that i was kind of dreading her death because i thought well when she goes it's going to be basically like my entire nuclear family that i grew up with is gone so that was really the more heavier way that um, my father's absence affected my feeling about my mother's death, I think. Do you have a sense, Mark, of watching your mother? I know you were four, but as you got older, your your mother was also grieving the death of her husband in her own way. What did you learn about grief from watching your mom growing up? Yeah. And, you know, also, again, I, I don't quite remember her grieving or doing anything specifically related to that after my father died because I was so young. And I think some kids have better memories of when they were four years old or five years old. And I don't. So I don't know what that says about me. I just don't, I don't know. Um, but at any rate, I don't really know too much about how she handled that, but I was around her when I was older and other people in the family died. So like her parents, her mother and father passed away, her brother and, you know, some uncles and aunts and things like that on, the, on, on various sides of my family. So what I did learn from her was that she was very practical. So just like one of the words that I use to describe her. So she was, you know, respectful and, and was, you know, she could be sad and emotional, but she always had a, an overall kind of attitude. And she actually said it exactly this way to me once when I asked her, how have you dealt with all these things you've been through in your life and raising a son by yourself and all this? She said, Sometimes you just do what you have to do. 
And so I think that kind of sums up how she's how she dealt with with other deaths in the family. And I think with my father, too, I think she just always knew that, you know, there are certain things you just have to do. You have to move forward in certain ways. And when my father died, one thing I do know that she that she did was that she went back to college. She'd never gotten her college degree because she quit uh, college to get married because that was something that women more like were more likely to do back in the 1940s. She went back to college. She got her bachelor's degree and then master's degree, and she got involved in the community more, doing volunteer work with organizations. And so she, in a way, after my father's death, she she got very active and involved. And I thought that I think that was very healthy, a choice of her, because she really became so involved and she became really happy, I think, in the long run, because she had so many things going on in her life. In addition to my beautiful present, she had she had all these wonderful things that she was doing. So I think that was a really that was a way of dealing with grief, I think, and also a way of moving forward with your life and and deciding, you know, what are your priorities now and what can you do to make sure that that you and your loved ones are happy? A big part of your book, Prepare for Departure, is the process of the end of your mother's life. And part of that was moving her from where you'd grown up to where you and your husband live in New York City in Queens. And I'm just curious how that shifted your relationship with her. I think in in some ways, like the relationship got got sweeter and more emotional because she was going downhill already, you know, physically. And also she was starting to lose her short-term memory. And so our roles started reversing. And I've heard about this and read about this in so many circumstances with other people too, that the roles reversed a little bit because I became a, the person who was responsible with together with my sister. Um, but although she was living closer to my mother was closer, living closer to me. So I was like the primary contact and the primary person responsible for taking care of her. And my sister helped too. I became so concerned with, I just wanted her to be happy and comfortable and to not worry about things that, that we couldn't change uh, because sometimes she did worry. I mean, I, I'm the same way. So we talked, we tried to talk about pleasant things. I tried to distract her with happy conversations about growing up because she still could remember details about going shopping in Louisville, Kentucky when she was a teenager, even if she couldn't remember what she had for lunch. You know, we, we spent so much quality time together in the last few months of her life I didn't bring up too much about my own life after that point because I knew that she couldn't, you know, she was having trouble grasping and holding on to things that were new. We focused on happy things and happy times. In a way, it was kind of a gift to be able to have those extra months together and to just be able to talk and show our affection to each other and all of that, even though obviously it was very challenging. It was very difficult for, for her and for me too. There's a point in your book when you write about um, a time that your mother wasn't able to remember your niece, her granddaughter, who had died of suicide. And in the book, as you write it, you're very like calm with your with your mother and just sort of matter of fact about it. And I wondered for you, what was the experience on the inside? Like, do you have a different internal experience during those moments of watching your mother lose chunks of her memory and, and her connection to the life she had lived? I definitely always tried to keep my calm on the outside with her during that time period, during those last few months, because I just felt my, my main focus whenever I was with her was just like, I don't want her to worry. I don't want her to get upset. I want her to be as comfortable as possible. And so I felt like if I showed anything that was too, you know, that I was going through any difficulties to her during that period, that it could just create un unnecessary stress for her or make her upset. 
Uh, but I did, I did also recognize that it's important to show your emotions. You can't bottle them up. So that wouldn't have been healthy for me. That would have had a bad, a bad effect on me. So, but I just, I knew where, where it would be better for me to, to vent my emotions. So I would come home and, you know, my husband is an amazing man and he really, really helped me get through all of this because I could say anything to him and talk about everything with him. And I could cry with him and say, you know, my worst fears or my, my scariest emotions and then the other thing that helped me a lot, and I guess because I was already a writer, I I turned to this, but I just started writing. That's how this book started. I didn't do it to be a book. I just did it like almost like a diary or journal. I wrote down everything good and bad that happened to my mother and me during those last those last nine months, and that was really therapeutic too. So that's uh, those are the two main ways that I that I dealt with my emotions and the difficulties was you know talking to and turning to my husband for support and also just writing it all out. But I know some other people can deal with with grief or this sort of situation through other things. You know, it could just be knitting or cooking or jogging. You know, there's a lot of ways that people can kind of work through emotions or meditation. So, but those are my two ways. The writing, which turned into your memoir, Prepare for Departure, and then also, you know, being with your husband and being able to talk through everything with him. And and he played a very big role in caring for your mother as well as a friend of yours. And I, I was sort of in awe of this like community that came together to support you and supporting your mother. Yeah, that was really, really wonderful. And obviously that's like going beyond above and beyond the call of duty as a husband or a spouse or, or a friend to do something like that. But yes, um, Angel especially was, was wonderful. And as you may have read in the book, you know, at one point my mother wanted the hairs plucked from her chin. And I was, I was terrified of doing that to her because I didn't want to hurt her and it grossed me out. I was like a bad son and everything. And I said, I don't know if I can do that mama. And, and he just jumped up and he said, well, I can do it. It's no big deal. I've seen my mother do that 5,000 times. So he did it. So yeah, the care that he showed to her, they had a really nice relationship. And so, you know, he, he was really there for her. And then also one of our friends who lives in our neighborhood in New York City, he would visit her and often he wouldn't even mention it to us, but he would go on his way home from work. He would he would walk over and see her and he happened to be there the day that she died and I didn't even realize it. So it, it was really, really wonderful. And yeah, friends and, and family members obviously can be such a big source of support and comfort for a sick loved one who's ill like my mother was. And also they're doing something for me too, because it makes me feel like my mother is less alone. So it's, it was really, really wonderful to see. I was thinking too, like in the course of your working life as a travel writer, right, you spend a lot of your time gone doing things, flying around the world and writing about them. And then when with your mother's illness, you were just rooted there with her so much. And I wondered what that was like for you to to shift that basic way of being in the world. It was it was a change. And I couldn't even I couldn't stay put, you know, without without traveling at all for too long because just because it's my job and I have to make a living. So I think it was the first three months or so after she arrived to the nursing home where I, I just put travel on hold. And usually I travel once to once or twice a month. So staying put for three months for me was a big change, but I was just so focused on her that I just felt like I didn't even want to travel. I just, I'm, I just was thinking I need to get her settled in. I need to make sure that she's as comfortable as, as possible. And we need to settle in and see what this new routine of our lives is like. After that point, I did start traveling again, still not as much as I had previously. And, but I, and I felt guilty every time I did, um, even though my husband and, and friends and my sister 
all said, you know, it might be good for you to get away for like three or four days because you need a, a psychological rest. But when I was traveling, I did feel guilty. When I was home, I felt I thought about her like every minute, I think, during those last few months. When I was traveling, I didn't think about her every minute, honestly. But I did think about her obviously multiple times every day because I was wondering what she was doing. But luckily, my husband, Angel, and, and my friends and my sister, they'd send photographs of themselves visiting her. So that did make me feel better. So Mark, as, as you're talking, and this came through in the memoir, but it's really coming through and talking to you of like how laser focused you were on supporting your mother during this period at the end of her life and just thinking about her and being there. And, and I've talked with other people who are in that role of a full-time caregiver in a sense. And then the person dies and it's like, oh, now what do I do with all that time and that energy? And what was that transition like for you? It was surreal. And I think other people have said things like that to, to have described it in a similar way that after someone like someone so close to you passes away, it was surreal and confusing and kind of disorienting almost, you know, like, again, I stepped in, I did what I had to do. And, you know, we made, you know, funeral arrangements and, and cremation arrangements and all of that. But then I just let normal things in my life slip. I missed deadlines for work that I didn't even know existed, even though I had them in my, in my schedule. I realized that now that like, I should have not made any decisions other than the ones I had to do related to my mother, I shouldn't have been making many major decisions, even when she was still alive, but in the last few months of their life, because it was just emotionally, I was just not exactly the same person that I was. So, um, but yeah, being with people, being with other people helped, but also being alone helped too. You know, I needed time to just sort it out and I, and I kept writing too. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a complicated and surreal time during, during the, especially during the last few months of her life. And then the, the, the first few months after she passed away. And your, and your mother died in 2016. So we're about six years since her death. And how has grief shifted or changed or evolved for you over these past six years? Well, number one, it's amazing how fast time flies because, you know, it's in some ways it feels like it was just like last year or something, you know? So I don't know if it's like that for other people. It has, the grief aspect has become easier to deal with for sure. I think it never goes away completely for me. You know, there, there are still some times when something will strike me and remind me of her and I can get emotional. And there are still some songs that some that are mentioned in the book, actually that remind me of those months that we spent together. And I have to avoid listening to those songs unless I'm in a place where I can allow myself to, to burst into tears or feel those emotions. And I don't want to desensitize myself to those things that trigger those emotions because they're, I consider them kind of like a souvenir of my affection for my mother and the time we spent together and I want to hold on to those memories. So I don't want to reach a place where, oh, I can listen to that song anytime and it's never, it's not going to do anything to me now. I want to save that song so I can pull it out, you know, at the right time so that then I can get emotional if I want to. Because I think, you know, grief is something that we need to learn to live with. And we need to, in some, to a certain extent, we need to move beyond it. But in other, in other ways, I think it's good to incorporate it in ways that make sense. So you don't, you don't want to forget your loved ones ever, you know? That's such a great way of putting it of when someone first dies, the grief is so much and so overwhelming that they just can't wait to get to the place where things don't 
aren't so painful. But then over time, those pain points almost become a little precious. And that as they diffuse into day to day life, and things get a little bit easier, it's like, oh, wait, I still want to be able to touch back into that, because that is my tether to the deep connection I have to my person as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something really special. And I think that's it's a beautiful thing, really. So for some folks, when someone dies suddenly, there's like no chance for those goodbyes or those what people imagine to feel like some sort of quote unquote closure conversations, which are somewhat mythological. And in the sense of being with your mother for a, pro a prolonged period of time as her health was declining, you write in your book about, you know, you, the two of you were very close, but the place where your relationship maybe had, I don't, I don't think you describe it as a rupture necessarily, but a, a place where it didn't quite connect was around a big part of your life, your sexuality, right. coming out to her. And did you feel any pressure in those last few months of her life to like repair everything around that? I did kind of think about that. Yeah, because also when you watch movies or read a novel or whatever, you know, it's times like that when you, you're supposed to go through every detail of everything and like set the record straight or, you know, get everything resolved to perfection. So that then it's the, the perfect movie ending. Right. I guess I just kind of decided that that we accepted each other how we were. <laughs> and so. And also since her memory is going, you know, it wasn't like talking to the same person as it would have been like two years earlier, you know? So I kind of felt like our ability to have a really deep conversation about issues like that, about, you know, her feelings about, about my sexual orientation wouldn't have gotten very far. It probably wouldn't have been satisfying. And so I kind of put that on the back burner really. And I just kind of realized that, you know, she's not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. I scratched a giant smiley face on her baby grand piano when I was young. And, she, and so she, she got over that. And it's not the exact same thing, but um, yeah. yeah. So we didn't really have a moment like that where we, I did fantasize about it, but we didn't have a moment like that where we, we were able to just sit there and say, you know, everything's okay. And, you know, and she didn't say, I love you, even though you're gay or I love you because you're gay or anything like that. So but what I did focus on and said was the real, what was, what had really been happening, what was really happening. She, she knew my husband for years, 20 years actually. And he'd been flying up with me to, to the snows of Rochester for Christmas every year for like 20 years. And we saw each other. We saw, we saw her every summer too. And they always got along so well. She treated him super well. He treated her super well. She sent us a, a, a what was for her, a big check for, for our honeymoon after we got married so I feel like that that said that said everything that needed to be said. You know, I looked at her actions and the way that they treated each other and their relationship. And so that gave me comfort and made me feel like, okay, you know, I don't think we're we're not going to be able to have the 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 movie perfect conversations that maybe would be nice. But I think the point that we'd all reached in our lives was was really good. And so that makes me feel comforted. You know, that makes me feel good. Mark, there's a there's a part in your book that really hit home for me. You you write about it was early in the process of getting your mother settled into her care facility, and one of the staff members came in, and you caught yourself not telling her that Angel is your husband 
from a place of fear and concern that you would that you or your mother would face discrimination, that she wouldn't be provided the same level of care. And it brought me right back to a moment in my own life when I was with my first girlfriend and she needed to go to the hospital in the middle of the night. And as we were like going down the corridor in the basement at midnight, I remember having this fear rise up in me of like, we can't tell them we're together because she won't get the highest level of medical care. And it speaks to so many pieces of our identity and how they interplay with our our way in the world and also particularly when we're in these moments of crisis and in grief and the fear that uh, that we or the people we care about won't be treated well um, because of that. And, you know, growing up in a world and a time with rampant homophobia, are there other places that you found that showing up in this experience uh, with your mother at the end of her life? It's a really good question. It's a really good point to bring up. And it was just so awful, you know, that just that sensation. And that was toward, that was in the final couple of weeks of my mother's life. I think it was when that, when that happened. And it was, it was just awful on multiple levels because it was embarrassing to me. I was, I was almost ashamed to put that, to include that scene in the book because I felt like, Oh, I'm just being a wimp. And what am I scared of? And this is the 21st century. And so I just felt like I'm being a bad gay by not standing up for who, you know, and saying who I am and, and that sort of thing. But it was just absolutely true. So I just decided I have to put that in there because people need to know that there is still homophobia. And there is, we, when we're in a situation like that, all I'm thinking of is like this, I don't know this woman. It was a nurse's aide, I guess. And like, I don't, I don't know her. And like, I, I just, you don't know what people are like until you talk to them for a little bit. And so what if she takes it out on my mother. And it was just an awful, awful feeling. What was also interesting is that um, the reactions I'm getting from some readers are super interesting because you realize you have more things in common with other people than you think. Because another, uh, one of the people who read my book contacted me and she said she went through something almost exactly the same, except that she's, she's not gay. She's Jewish. And she had her father was in the hospital and he's super ill and she was she suddenly had this attack of paranoia where she was afraid to mention the fact that they were Jewish because they thought that the people in the hospital might be anti-Semitic. So, you know, there's there's definitely still, you know, discriminatory attitudes. And even though I didn't come across it, the fact that I felt like I might have to hide who I was, it was just it was just really it was sad. You know, it's a sad statement about society and that, you know, I wish I could be stronger. But when you're trying to protect someone, not even yourself, if it had just been me, I would have stood up and said that. But when it's someone else that you're trying to protect, who's vulnerable, it puts it in a whole new light. But it, yeah, it's really uncomfortable, isn't it? Well, I'm just, I was, grateful is not the right word. But when I read it, there was such a moment of recognition. So I know you said you struggled with whether you're going to put it in the book. So I just want to say thank you for putting it in the book, because it really spoke to me and brought me back to that moment and got fired up about it again. <laughs> and it also brought me to the place of thinking, it's interesting with pieces of identity of what's visible and what's not, you know, that I had the advantage of not showing a side of myself where I might run into bias or discrimination versus maybe folks who have identities that are much more visible that they can't do that. Shifting a little, you know, we've talked about the fact that you're a travel writer. And for a lot of folks, when they're in their grief, they turn to their work. It's something that they, maybe it's just me, but that's what I do. I just work more. I'm like, here's what I'm going to do with these emotions, put them into my work. And then I think about COVID-19 shows up in 2020, pandemic hits, travel restrictions, 
no one's going anywhere. And I wondered what it was like for you to be grounded again, but this time not caring for your mother just because of the pandemic and how that impacted your grief. Right. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I was grounded for almost the exact same amount of time for two different reasons within a course of uh, however it was like three or four years apart. Yeah, it was difficult too. Um, Luckily, I I didn't, you know, descend into into any depression related to my mother's, uh, you know, loss or anything. I did think about things more, but I actually tried to take advantage of the fact that I was stuck at home to actually write more about about our experiences, my mother's and my experiences. So the pandemic actually helped help me progress with what would become the book. And also, I have to say, sharing the apartment with my husband helped me so much because he's a super fun, very positive guy. And so we kept each other entertained. And, you know, we had dance parties in the living room while watching television musicals on TV and things like that. So it was definitely not the most difficult thing that I've gone through, luckily, for for those reasons. So, um, but yeah, it did give me a chance to focus more since I wasn't traveling as much. It gave me a chance to focus more on what I really wanted to say, the story I wanted to tell about my mother and about our experience together. I just had this flash of thinking of you as like a small child and it's just you and your mom after your dad dies in this very like insular unit. And then here you are during the pandemic, a very insular unit with your husband as well. The familiarity of a party of two. That's true. And yeah, I think because, yeah, I think it's my, nat- my natural state is that I I'm, I'm better in like one-on-one situations like that. And it, just because of how I grew up, I think so. So yeah, for me, it probably was easier than for other people who are used to being around, you know, 10 or 15 friends or family members or whatever. So, so yeah, I think that's probably true. It was not that different from what I grew up with. Well, Mark, my last question for you is a question I've never asked anybody else on Grief Out Loud. So this feels kind of exciting. But <laughs> I'm curious if you have seen or felt any parallels between grief and travel? Parallels, I'm not sure if I've seen. That I do think that people deal with grief and mourning in different ways, and that there are so many different valid ways to do so. So for me, it is, I guess it can be part of it because grief, because travel for me, it's it can be a distraction. And so in a way, it kind of gets me focused on I can't feel too sad about something that's happened because here I am in Mexico City and I'm about to go into this beautiful museum, you know. So in a way it can be thera- a therapeutic distraction. Although, you know, I don't I don't like to avoid my emotions completely. I don't want to, you know, X out my emotions. I want to deal with them. But at the same time, you know, life is life and I want to try to have a good time and try to learn and try to keep expanding and growing as a per- as a person. Um but I think it's similar in a way travel could be similar to what other people, some other people might do to deal with grief and mourning. Cause you know, some people might paint, they might, you know, be into art or cooking or volunteering at organizations, you know, or, you know, volunteering at an organization like yours that helps other people. Um, so I think it's really good whether it's travel or not. I think it's good when we can identify things that provide healthy distractions at times, you know, not to keep us from dealing with our emotions, but because it's important that we let, our, let ourselves feel that what we feel, but also to remind us that there are things we can still do to bring ourselves joy and to, you know, keep our loved ones in our in our hearts and minds at the same time. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And I, as we were talking, I was thinking about 
a, a parallel that I sometimes see around it is like in, in, in anticipation of a trip, you do as much planning as you can. And you have a lot of wonderings about what it's going to be like. And you mm. try to forecast what it's going to be like. But you never know exactly what it's going to feel like until you're doing it. And I feel like that is a parallel with grief of like we, we can try to anticipate what it's going to be like. But it's so different for everybody. Each experience is different. And there's no way to truly know until you like get on that plane and go where you're going uh, of what it's going to feel like. That's very true. Yeah. In a way, travel is kind of like life itself because it's not predictable and you can't control every aspect of it. And sometimes difficult or bad things will happen on a trip, just like in, in life. Right. So, yeah, it, that's that's very true. There are parallels. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, thank you so much for, you know, coming on Grief Out Loud today to talk about your mother, to talk about your experience with the end of her life and about living with her, basically, and, and about your new book, Prepare for Departure. And I'm wondering anything you'd want to share with our listeners of how they can connect with you or the book or follow along on your your travel adventures. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, you can go to my website where I have all my social media um, listed. So my website is markchestnut.com. Mark is with a K. The most difficult and weirdest thing is my last name is Chestnut, but with no T in the middle. So it's M-A-R-K-C-H-E-S-N-U-T.com. So you can go there or you can follow me on Instagram, which is Mundera, M-U-N-D-E-R-A. And so I always post a lot about my travels there and some and sometimes stuff about my mother too. So because she's the one who got me into travel in the first place. So, so I have her to thank. <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you again for making time. And I wish you so well with, with the book and, and the next you know phase of your life. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And um, I, I really appreciate your time. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time. Thank you for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also the website for the organization that I work for, Dougie Center. And at that website, you'll find all the past episodes of Grief Out Loud, a bunch of free downloadable resources, and information about programs similar to ours uh, all across the country and all across the world. And I'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Steffen Endowment Fund. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.